Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, A culture is a means of uniting society by making provision for differences. Differences do not create resentment unless the seed of resentment has been otherwise planted. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is culture? What holds culture together? Why is distinction fundamental to the survival of culture? Today we continue our Exploring Weaver series by looking at the image of culture and the importance of cultural freedom. Joining us again as our guide on this journey is Dr. Jim Tolman, rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and the author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tolman, let's dive in. Jocelyn, the first thing that comes to my mind when somebody is discussing some sort of social fabric issue or something along those lines is Weaver, of course. And I'm a rhetorician, and so the only way I can think about the relationship between dialectic and rhetoric is what I learned from my mentor who wrote his thesis, uh, his dissertation on Weaver, and what I've read of Weaver. And, you know, that was a long, it was 1980 when I first started taking classes from that guy at Black Hill State University in Spearfish, South Dakota. It was called Black Hill State College back then. Anyway, I I can't escape this stuff. And so, you know, you start to feel like, what are you, Johnny One Note? And you don't even <laughs> sure. have your own notes. They're, they're all weavers, you know. But I, I appreciate the fact that you're seeing that as well. Now you're going to yeah, have that absolutely. problem the rest of your life. <laughs> I, I am. I am. And fortunately, you know, in his short life, because really he was not that old when he died. Fortunately, yeah. in his short life, he wrote so prolifically so that yeah. we have so much that we can read. And then, you know, as you've done and as as you read his essays and he references um, other writers, then you you kind of as as you've mentioned before, th then you start having kind of this this web of connections, and it the the sphere is is larger. And the neat thing is, it becomes encouraging because sometimes, especially in our times, you can start to get the feeling that I'm the only one who thinks like this, and then all of a sudden you have you have Dr. Tallman and you have Richard Weaver and you have T.S. Eliot and you have, you know, you have all these guys Chester that Tom. are, yeah, exactly. Um, and so you have all these guys that are, are speaking to this and sometimes providing coherence to the scattered thoughts that come while you're living in the midst of it. And I think that that is not to jump the gun, but exactly what you're getting at at the beginning here that the doctor of culture to a certain extent has to, or the, the, the cultural critic has to be outside of, of the culture to a certain extent 
looking in. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And doctor of culture is just an interesting synonym for a cultural critic. And so you can use them interchangeably, but the, the idea that Weaver develops regarding the need for distance that you can't be absorbed within the culture in order to help analyze and prescribe cures for societal ills uh, because you're too close to it. And, and it's kind of like you're either in it and of it or you're apart and, and an alien. And so there's a, there's a middle ground that hopefully the, um, cultural critic can objectify and distance enough to gain perspective. That's the point. But this is what we're called to in scripture as Christians, right? To be in the world, but not of the world. Amen. That was right in the back of my mind when you said it. And I was thinking, you know, that's really congruent with how we're called to live our life in Christ. So it shouldn't be so surprising that this world is not our home in the first place. Exactly. We're children of eternity. This is an important thing because in order to understand what Weaver is talking about and in order to, in a certain way, receive comfort from his critique of culture, from, from the way he looks at things, you have to step out and you have to have perspective. And I would even go so far as to say the only way that you can do that is by having an historical perspective. You know, you can't Mm -hmm. be caught up in the moment You have to have the whole spectrum of history informing the way you're looking at today. Because otherwise, if you don't, that's how you get caught up in being in the world and of the world if you don't have history. Well said. One of the characteristic traits of people who are into classical education is that they strive to cultivate a robust historical perspective. And that makes us out of step with postmodernity right from the beginning. That very attitude sets us apart. So, uh, yeah, we don't have a tough time at all being outside that culture, but the culture that you're attempting to redeem and preserve and conserve uh, it's difficult. It's difficult to maintain perspective outside that culture when you love it so much and you care for it, and you're trying to do something to uh, be a blessing and be a watchman on the wall and all those kind of cliches. Okay, the image of culture. This is a good overview of culture per se and some of the dynamics of culture that Weaver features in his treatment of it. And I've learned so much from Richard Weaver about how to understand culture and how it works and why it's important and how you 
operate as a doctor of culture and a doctor of culture diagnoses societal ills and prescribes cures, right? So really when you start to read across Richard Weaver's works, you realize that a lot of what he does is he'll critique schools of thought that I think we said in like two episodes back, I read that little note he wrote to uh, Ralph T. Eubanks in Language of Sermonic, that he was identifying a school of thought that he saw as eating away at the fiber of our society. Remember that? Yes. And so many of his talks that he gave, uh, probably the majority of the essays that are collected together in Weaver's works are talks that he gave to groups of college professors or students when he was invited to come and speak at various universities. And he was trying to identify those trains of thought or schools of thought that were inimical to the well-being of the culture and contributing to the decline of the culture. Okay, so, and his real standard, this is something that's important to bear in mind always, Weaver's real standard by which he measured and this is really clear in as you read across his essays, is the image of man. So perspectives that contribute to a denuded image of man, he went after tooth and nail. And that's a good standard for us because we're all about the Imago Dei, right? Exactly. So it's, it's consistent with our worldview. And so what you learn of culture and cultural coherence and the cultural role of rhetoric it's all wrapped up in these essays the image of culture is a good one to learn about the overview and by the way i really recommend t.s Eliot's notes towards a definition of culture as well there's a little booklet that came out several years ago and that's one of the essays in it and then something about christian society it's really interesting. They're both good little, I think they're lectures as well that T.S. Eliot gave. Anyway, uh, I learned a lot by reading that from T.S. Eliot as well. He has some pretty deep thoughts about culture. Anyway, then when you get into the importance of cultural freedom, that's where all of these things that we've marveled over regarding the relevance of what Weaver has to say start to really surface, right? Absolutely. It, starts to, it gets overwhelming. The importance of cultural freedom is like a tsunami of relevance to our contemporary dilemma we're in in America in 2020. Yes. So, I think I have almost even, the whole essay uh, highlighted and underlined. <laughs> Now the, Joss, the importance of cultural freedom. That. I know everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, you know as well as I do. Once he starts talking about statuary and all that, it's not the same take. It's not as though there are anarchists running around in Weaver's essay. He's talking right. about the problem of anarchists tearing down statues, but. You know, come to think of it, he does talk about uh, 
Bolsheviks and communists doing that sort of dirty deed and erasing history. So he does return to the notion of the importance of historicity and, and, uh, but he really talks when he's discussing cultural freedom, he's talking about the arts within culture. Yes. And their important historical function and how they need to be free to do that. And it's really relevant in a larger philosophical sense. It may not be as relevant in the details of our situation, but those who have a tendency to look toward the root of things will definitely recognize some fundamental coherence between what Weaver was analyzing and what we're experiencing. Okay, so to get started, that was preliminary. I was trying to provide an introduction for today's activity um, and the link between the image of culture, a general overview of Weaver on culture and the importance of cultural freedom, which is very fortuitous that we chose to discuss that one as well given what's going on. And I don't think the whole statue thing was happening in our major cities when we chose these essays. No. So that was fortuitous, as I said. Absolutely. So these are Weaver's philosophical ruminations on the nature of culture. He circles the notion of the tyrannizing image, and he observes of that, there is at the heart of every culture a center of authority from which there proceed subtle and pervasive pressures upon us to conform and to repel the unlike as disruptive. So culture, too, is faced with the metaphysical problem of freedom and organization, which rules out the possibility of uncircumscribed liberty. Like all forces which shape and direct, it must insist on a pattern of inclusion and exclusion. This is a necessity of integral being and a fundamental fact to deal with in any plan for its protection. Okay, that's a nice viewpoint about how it is that cultural coherence, what holds all this together, is some sort of an image that's constructed out of tacit values that members agree to embrace, uphold, and conserve. If you don't have that, there's nothing around which to cohere, right? Right. So it's tyrannizing. He chooses the, the word tyrannizing to represent that centripetal force, he calls it, that forces conformity and which, you know, frankly, that's what liberals really dislike about culture is it imposes restraint that they defy in their very being. Right. And with that, it's a false cohesion. It's a false uniformity that they want because they want to eliminate distinction, whereas distinction is fundamental to culture. Yes. What they want without actually even, either they don't understand that they want it 
or they're so devilish about it that they, and I'm thinking of the extremists here, right? that they're, they're so devilish about it that they attack ours and contribute to the dissolution of society that they don't want based on traditional mores and ancient presuppositions and so forth, time-tested principles. And they intend to replace that with their own version of egalitarian and lawlessness, really. It's always just baffled me how leftists and Islamists can find common cause. I don't get that except that their common cause is hatred for the West and all we stand for. Yeah. We're the great Satan after all, right? Exactly. So they're willing to tear down. Antifa and their ilk are willing to tear down, and they're nihilists for that reason. Weaver talks about Jacobins a little bit later. What Weaver says about Jacobins is a good way to understand how lay people, I would say, I would count myself as a lay person in all these kinds of matters, how we view anarchists and Antifa members. They're Marxists, but they're really nihilists insofar as at this stage of the game, they're tired of talking and all they want to do is tear down and they don't particularly care. They voice this. They don't particularly care what takes the place of what they tear down. All they know is religion and traditional values and traditional political institutions must come down. They want to destroy the tyrannizing image. Ultimately, they're clawing at God because our Judeo-Christian roots are derived in natural law. By the way, I... It's hard for me to also escape discussing C.S. Lewis at this time because we have another discussion going on in a different venue, also hosted graciously by Wittenberg Academy on C.S. Lewis. And when he talks in The Abolition of Man about the Tao, he Mm -hmm. associates it with the natural law, which is derived from God's law. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, that sort of thing. Okay, well, that goes a long way toward understanding what Weaver contributes to our discussion of culture in terms of being a doctor of culture and cultural dynamics. So let's proceed. How one diagnoses cultural ills suggests the cures one prescribes. We just did that, in fact. I think we just illustrated that because you chimed in and said they're trying to attack the tyrannizing image. Right. That's a diagnostic type of statement. That America is experiencing social decay is pretty well settled for us. There are no doubt those who perceive that America is on the verge of getting much healthier if they can succeed with their reboot. Weaver's helpful here, but bear in mind that his critique takes place in the previous modern era. He writes, some, if not many, of the defenders of the optimistic position regarding the status of culture 
have a vested interest in progress or the present trend of things. So he's saying, you know, follow the money, basically. And I read a brilliant post log in um, State of Fear. Michael Crichton writes this essay. Everybody should read that essay. And he basically says, I'm a liberal. I identify as a liberal, but I hate politicized science. Because in the name of science, these people are essentially building their war chests and enriching themselves and their institutions uh, by spreading fear. And that's what uh, State of Fear is all about. It's a really cool novel about environmentalists who actually find a way to harness weather science to create violent weather related episodes that they can then use as evidence for climate change. <laughs> wow. Isn't that, you know, and things like that. I mean, there's several different angles that he develops in his book, but then at the end of it, he just takes off the mask and he, he says, this is why I hate politicized science. So here's what Weaver writes just after he says that uh, some people have a vested interest in defending progress at all costs. What well, I think probably what he was talking about in his day would be the very early development of the National Institutes of Health and all the mm -hmm. research grants they were pursuing. When we turn to the other view, we find that it is made up predominantly of persons who are concerned with the nature of man and the problem of value. He's talking about us now. They are people with definite ideas of right and wrong, possessing the faculty of taste and consciences which can be offended. Furthermore, they usually will be historically informed with the result that to them, novelty is not always originality, nor a fresh departure toward a new horizon. If they are conservative, it is because they have learned the truth of the maxim, quote, the good is hard, end quote. And they know how tempting it is to try to circumvent this. It is my observation that these people suffer a great deal, and their suffering is sometimes used to condemn them, as if failure to achieve complacency were an indictable thing. But it is only those who are capable of discrimination and of feelings against things who can be the custodians of culture. Could I read that again? Yes, please do. It is only those who are capable of discrimination and of feelings against things who can be the custodians of culture. So he's not really defending discrimination in the silly way it's been pushed today you know, by egalitarians that, you know, discrimination of all sorts are bad, but discrimination, uh, a discriminating palate, for example, is considered a good thing. Somebody who has a discriminating sensibility knows what he or she likes and can defend the reasons why. And on the other hand, understands what he or she dislikes and can explain why it's not best to like certain things. 
So anybody who takes distinction and hierarchy seriously understands that there are discriminations that have to be made. So he actually, Weaver covers that very well in a collection of essays called Life Without Prejudice and Other Essays. And he basically starts off by saying that there is a tide of opinion against the term prejudice, which is unfortunate because people who have prejudices are discriminating individuals, not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense. And anyone of culture will be and refinement will have these discriminating prejudices or biases. So anyway, that's a nice compliment to that to this. And what he's saying is these are the type of people who can actually have feelings against things that can be custodians of culture because, of course, culture itself has to discriminate against that which is inimical to its well-being. It has a principle of self-preservation inherent in it, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. Finishing this paragraph. Accordingly, I am satisfied that T.S. Eliot made a true appraisal of our times in asserting that, quote, our own period is one of decline, that the standards of culture are lower than they were 50 years ago, and that the evidences of this decline are visible in every department of human activity. So T.S. Eliot wrote that in Notes Towards a Definition of Culture, and that's what prompted me to read it 30 years ago. Okay, so let me read one quick excerpt from that. Cultural dynamics are subtle, complex, and nuanced. And Eliot writes further, Culture is the one thing that we cannot deliberately aim at. It is the product of a variety of more or less harmonious activities, each pursued for its own sake. The artist must concentrate upon his canvas, the poet upon his typewriter, the civil servant upon the just settlement of particular problems. The point at which we can arrive is the recognition that these conditions of culture are natural to human beings, that although we can do little to encourage them, we can combat the intellectual errors and the emotional prejudices which stand in their way. For the rest, we should look for the improvement of society as we seek our own individual improvement in relatively minute particulars. Shades of a thousand points of light. Yes. I really appreciate that statement. Culture is the one thing that we cannot deliberately aim at. It, that, it, ha- that, that's it has what makes to this difficult. Yeah. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. And when you start trying to consciously and programmatically improve it, it escapes. Culture, as Richard M. Weaver and T.S. Eliot are discussing, is something that requires distinction. And distinction and hierarchy and culture, they're so hand in hand that when you when you remove distinction you crush culture now listen you run a school right yes you run a lutheran school you don't just run any kind of generic school you have a traditional 
liberal arts curriculum taught with the most robust Lutheran catechesis you can find. You tell me, have you ever been tempted to just indoctrinate kids through this program? Just let's get it over with and just be direct about it and let's just indoctrinate them. It would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it would be excruciatingly efficient. Yeah. To just And I'm sure a lot of people assume that's what we're up to anyway. But the fact of the matter that is that part and parcel with that time-tested western tradition that we believe, teach and confess and embrace is free thought, reason, discourse. I'm a rhetorician, right? So I have a vested interest in equipping my students to look at both sides of a question and to understand and to be empathetic, in fact, to people who differ from them and see what they have to say in mutual respect. And all of that ethic is a part of what we're doing and we cannot resort to indoctrination like people on the extreme left insist on doing. Talk about a tyrannizing image. Oh, my word. Right. And you had mentioned in a previous episode that when it comes to catechesis, we do indoctrinate. There's no free thought within catechesis. We teach the faith. There is, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no free thought around that. Yes, we practice both and. Exactly. We practice indoctrination where it's proper, where you're bringing people up in the faith and they need theological instruction. It is indoctrination in the benign sense. And even when we're doing that, we're helping children have a living faith regarding doctrines that are orthodox, and we're teaching them to them in a serious way, all the while presupposing that you embrace these truths freely. In the deepest sense, we're not shoving it down their throat. We're presenting it to them with much prayer and expecting them to embrace it, but realizing, you know, they're not all going to do that. Right. And And as Lutherans, we take comfort in the fact that when it comes to the actual working of faith, that that is not our work, but the work of the Holy Spirit. And yes. so that yes. that takes the it takes the pressure off <laughs> to to a certain yes. extent. Not that it it removes the the mandate to be faithful, but it it ensures that it's going to be done right. You know, if if yes. the working of faith was was our job, we'd mess it up. And so, yeah. thanks be to God, it's <laughs> the work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. All right. So then, Weaver uses. T.S. Eliot's work in much the same way that he was using Platonic dialogues in previous essays as evidence of a person who is doing cultural critique through his poetry. 
It's really beautiful, but I'm not going to say anything at all about that because at the end of the essay, Weaver then returns to his discussion of the tyrannizing image. Weaver's trenchant cultural analysis is unparalleled. What Weaver dubs the tyrannizing image is a vision that exercises centripetal force, holds things together. So the tyrannizing image is a vision. That's why you you can't really treat it philosophically and logically and dialectically in an overt and conscious fashion, or as I said before, it slips through your fingers. So in order for it to do its important work in providing cultural cohesion, that tyrannizing image has to be, it has to do its work on almost a subconscious level. It's really a mystery, actually. Mm -hmm. And finally, the concept of cultural self-determination is what he discusses. Quote, such centripetalism is the essence of culture's power to cohere and to endure. And for this reason, it is the very nature of culture to be exclusive. Without the power to reject that which does not understand or acknowledge its center of force, it would disintegrate. Disintegrate, right? We might say that a culture continues by attracting and attracts by continuing. Weaver observes of the tyrannizing image that in its function as a center of authority, there proceed from it, quote, subtle and pervasive pressures upon us to conform and to repel the unlike as disruptive. So culture, too, is faced with the metaphysical problem of freedom and organization, which rules out the possibility of uncircumscribed liberty. Like all forces which shape and direct, it must insist on a pattern of inclusion and exclusion. This is necessity of integral being and a fundamental fact to deal with in any plan for its protection. I think I read that already at the outset. So returning to our previous podcast, I think it was distinction and hierarchy. Hierarchy Mm -hmm. is anathema to postmodern egalitarians. They can abide neither individuals who distinguish themselves, nor those whose elevated status bespeaks social hierarchy, let alone some supposed core around which citizens are compelled to conform. Conformity? Are you kidding me? That is oppression. (laughs) But the organic vision of Christ's many-membered body simply does not work without hierarchy. Yes. We... Weaver does homage to this biblical presupposition when he asserts, quote, a culture is a means of uniting society by making provision for differences. Differences do not create resentment unless the seed of resentment has been otherwise planted, unquote. Exactly. How do the members know their place without distinction and hierarchy? How can the body function harmoniously when members do not understand that some receive more honor than others and that upon lesser members we rightly bestow greater honor? Minus distinction hierarchy, the body would be spastic, uncoordinated, rendered dysfunctional. 
I have an essay, by the way, that I wanted to recommend that dwells on some of these points. And I think I might have even borrowed a quotation or two from it. And it's on the rhetoric ring. And in fact, I hope we have a link to it when this hits the podcast. Absolutely. It's called On Being a Doctor of Culture. And it's on rhetoric ring, what we can learn by being a doctor of culture from Richard Weaver. So it's directly, it's not even a rabbit trail. It's directly related to what we're talking about and just takes a different tack. All right. A very important consideration for the cultural critic on distance, uh, kind of a different take on social distancing. (laughs) (laughs) Namely, that the cultural critic, if he is to have impact, must be outside the culture to some extent. Here we go. One more thing needs to be said about the relation of a critic to his culture. There is an opinion by no means easy to refute that culture is like a brotherhood. Either you are of it or you are not. If you are of it, you can do something about it to the extent of carrying it on by living according to its prescriptions. If you are not of it, there is nothing you can do about it, except perhaps describe it from a distance while missing the real inikite. Inigkeit is German for unity, and it has to do with, uh, it's used philosophically to indicate that which binds us together. On this assumption, there is no such thing as aiding a culture from the outside or of aiding it consciously in any way. If you belong to it, you live in and by it. If you are outside it, you find the gulf impassable, except to certain superficial contacts. Culture is culturing. And when a culture has lost its will to live, outside ministrations are of no use. If there's one statement Weaver makes that I dwell on continually, it's probably that one. Have we gotten to the point yet in our culture where our culture has lost its will to live? Sometimes you wonder. Mm -hmm. But in a further view... There is more than one way of being outside a culture. One can be outside it simply in the sense of having been born outside its pale and having received no nurture through it. People in this position constitute the kind of foreigners the Greeks called barbaroi, those speaking a different language. Certainly not to speak the language of a culture in the figurative sense is to suffer effective disbarment. These persons are alien even when they belong to another culture of high development. The man of a different culture has different intellectual and moral bearings. And except in the case of gifted individuals having long periods to assimilate, there is no crossing over nor any real desire for it. The men of another culture are outsiders and one expects no more from them than from a friendly stranger, although there is sometimes critical value in an outside view. There's another type of outsider, however, who may entertain hope of doing something about a culture that is weakening. Here we go. He is a member of the culture who has to some degree estranged himself from it through study and reflection. He is like the savant in society. Though in it, he is not wholly of it. He has acquired knowledge and developed habits of thought which enable him to see it in perspective and to gauge it. 
He has not lost the intuitive understanding which belongs to him as a member, but he has added something to that. A temporary alienation from his culture may be followed by an intense preoccupation with it, but on a more reflective level than that of the typical member. He has become sufficiently aware of what is outside it to see it as a system or an entity. Hmm. I think maybe that's what this podcast is helping us with. Mm -hmm. This person may be a kind of doctor of culture. In one way, he's crippled by his objectivity. But in another way, he is helped to what he must have, a point of view and a consciousness of freedom of movement. Okay, so the doctor of culture must maintain distance to conduct proper diagnostics, right? Right. That's pretty interesting, I think. Here's, here's another quotation. But what can this person who is not a paragon of the culture, but who finds himself profoundly stirred by its uneasy situation, actually contribute? There's a question I've asked myself a lot, too. From his mixed position, he probably can recognize the hostile or disruptive forces. Like the doctor again, he cannot make the object of his attention live, but he can combat those things which would keep it from living. He can point out, this is a disease, this is a poison, this is a bad diet. If the inimical conditions are removed and if there's true, a true vitality, the sufferer should recover. There are, of course, limits of the analogy of a human culture to an organism. Yet, culture is a creation in the world, and it must obey certain fundamental conditions of existence. Okay, so that's a nice little cultural dynamic that Weaver throws in there. So, when you did the celebration of student oratory, and you recognized that our students were operating as doctors of culture which is to say the bulk of their oratories had to do with addressing societal ills. And they just came up with that on their own. I, I invited them to talk to me about their, um, about their themes for their speeches, but I didn't impose on them that I want everyone to think of something that would allow you to act as a doctor of culture and discuss some sort of societal ill. They, they did that naturally. I just helped them cultivate it. We teach this, we discuss it, and we practice it. This is not learning as usual, and it is not simple instruction and speech communication that we're up to here. Wittenberg Academy has a robust block of rhetoric instruction that introduces students to rhetorical theory by exposing them to these very ideas from Richard Weaver. Why? Because they are timely and they are enduring ideas. They're profound and supremely practical. They account for why rhetoric held such an elevated position in the classical liberal arts curriculum, but simultaneously why rhetoric is so important in the marketplace at street level, so to speak, for the life of the world. It is vital that we take the pains that we do to educate, to form scholars in the way that we do 
and Martin Luther talked about this. And God gave this mandate to uh, through Moses to the to the Israelites that training children and forming children, teaching children is not something that is as simple as giving them a pill and saying, okay, now you're good to go. I like to say the good, true, and beautiful, that is not a checklist. It's a life list. And classical education is difficult. It is. It It, it it requires sacrifice and hard work. Yes. And a lot of people like the idea of a classical education, but then when they get into it and realize how hard it is, then they don't really want it anymore. But those who persist, those who who stay in it and experience the blood, sweat, and tears also get to experience the joys and the triumphs and the, the understanding that we don't do classical education, we don't do Lutheran education for the glory. We do this so that we can be of service to our neighbor while we are here, this side of heaven. But at the same time, because it's not for glory, we also say, come Lord Jesus quickly, because this world is not my home. But while it is, while I'm here, I want to serve well. I need to be of I need to be formed. I need to be equipped. But come Lord Jesus quickly. I want to go home. Yes. And yet we're investing all of this time, talent, and treasure in pursuing and imparting this learning for the life of this world because it's good, right, and salutary to do so. Yes. And this is our vocation. We're called to it. You know, uh, speaking of my vocation as a rhetorician, I had a nice little series of both ands there, but I forgot perhaps the most important one of all, that rhetoric in its cultural role is a means of both building cultural coherence through speaking of values, right? And also at the same time, implying the deeper values that form what my mentor called the deep rhetoric of society, which is the tyrannizing image. So you speak from that and you speak about what is good, right, and beautiful and, you know, extol the virtues of these things through rhetoric. But rhetoric is also a means of change. It is a means of permanence and reinforcing permanence, but it it is also a vehicle for orderly change, and I would add, in a free society. That's the biggest both and of all, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to what we're talking about. Weaver concludes his discussion of the tyrannizing image and provides a perfect segue to the importance of cultural freedom, a society which is cohesive in this way through classes which have developed naturally out of civic and cultural vocation is in point of fact stronger than one which is undifferentiated. The latter tends to be inflexible and brittle. It does not have the internal give and take of the former. The inner organizations of a structural society act as struts and braces and enable it to withstand a blow which would shatter the other. 
The whole is sustained by its parts, which afford, as it were, a protection in depth. Nations composed of such societies have proved themselves very tough in international encounters. English society, despite a high degree of classness, has displayed intense patriotism and great power of endurance in crises. The society of the American South, which is formed somewhat upon the English model, has stood up under strong attacks and pressures from the outside through its sense of being organized. All the evidence shows that differentiation, which is not fragmentation, is a source of strength. But such differentiation is possible only if there is a center toward which the parts look for their meaning and validation. One of the functions of cultural activity is to objectify the center so that it will exist as an ever-present reminder of one's place and one's vocation. A high degree of cultural orientation is, accordingly, a symptom of a healthy society. Nice. There is a wellspring of courage and valor and dignity and strength and faith that we know not of. We just have to trust that more. I have to trust that more than I do. And that's what Weaver's talking about here. So I guess it goes beyond cultural cohesion, right? It goes to specifically the human beings that are enculturated within that petri dish, so to speak, of culture. And that's why this all matters too, right, Mrs. Benson? Right. In brief, Weaver concludes, culture is an exclusive, which is to say self-defining creation, which satisfies needs arising from man's feeling and imagination. Every culture has a kind of ontological basis in social life. And this social life does not express itself in equality, but in a common participation from different levels and through different vocations. The importance of cultural freedom. I'll give you the last word on that last essay. It's vital that we approach culture, that we approach the world and that we make an apology for mm-hmm. by apology i mean make a good confession for this last phrase a common participation from different levels and through different vocations it's okay to be different it's vital to be different we don't need more mrs bensons right <laughs> you know the world Amen. can only handle one <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is important that I do what I have been called to do and you do what you have been called to do. And if we all do what we're called to do, which, you know, a calling comes from outside of us, you know, God has called us to our vocations. And so that's the beautiful thing about this is that yes. if if we do what we're called to do, there is unity, even though we're called to do different things. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Yes. And so many people would would benefit and find peace, frankly, in their life if they understood the doctrine of vocation. What we have been fortunate to grow up with and to learn 
is really valuable. And I might say, I think it's very consistent with what Weaver teaches. We're seeing that. It gives plenty of opportunity for us to springboard into these kinds of Lutheran discussions um, as we start to process what he's talking about in terms of culture and vocation. He's talking the same lingo. Most certainly. All right. So the importance of cultural freedom. That essay is really powerful because he teaches that a healthy society takes in stride public works of art that display nudity and a number of different insights about how you can understand the well-being of a culture by how it relates to works of art and the philosophy of art that is predominant in a given society. And so it's just another take on um, what we were just discussing about culture. He concludes, quote, a society will not feel the need for much censorship unless it is somehow out of joint itself. Its relevance today as mobs tear down statues which ostensibly offend their sense of social justice cannot be overestimated. In some ways, the opening six paragraphs of this essay restate, though more elegantly even, the points we just got done discussing from the image of culture. And specifically, cultures need to discriminate against that which violates its right to self-direction. So where the image of culture left off, Weaver takes up the discussion here and reiterates it in the first six paragraphs. Our audience is just going to have to read that because we need to push ahead. The seventh paragraph, for the freedom of cultures as wholes, two rights must be respected. The right of cultural pluralism, where different cultures have developed, and the right of cultural autonomy in the development of a single culture. In a word, Cultural freedom on this plane starts with the acknowledgement of the right of a culture to be itself. This is a principle deduced from the nature of culture, not from the nature of the state. Culture grows from roots more enduring than those of the political state. It also offers satisfactions more intimate than those of the political state, and hence it is wrong to force it to defer to political abstractions. The very fact that it has not chosen to embody those abstractions is evidence that they are extraneous. Culture emerges out of climactic, geographical, ecological, racial, religious, and linguistic soils. A state may have to deal with all these factors, but it does not deal with them at the level where they enter into cultural expression. That is the reason for saying that the policy of a state toward the culture or cultures within it should be laissez-faire, except at those points where collisions may be so severe that they imperil the minimum preservation of order with which the state is charged. Here's where Weaver does his cultural critique. He talks about the Jacobins in our midst. The Jacobins are the levelers the egalitarians, and in the French Revolution, the Jacobins were communists. 
It is important to note that Jacobinism has always been hostile to culture. When the scientist Lavoisier was brought to trial during the French Revolution, his contributions to knowledge, which were of the first order, were pleaded as a reason to spare his life. The plea is said to have been answered by the president of the Revolutionary Tribunal with the statement, La République n'a pas besoin de savants, and La Voisier was sent to the guillotine. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think it means the Republic has no need of savants. The extreme radical Francois Babouf, in his Manifesto of the Society of Equals, exclaimed, Let all the arts perish if only we can have equality. The nihilist Pisarev declared that he would rather be a Russian shoemaker than a Russian Raphael. In Hitler's Germany, which was a pathological deviation of the right as this extremism was of the left, there was contempt for cultivation well epitomized for posterity in the saying, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. The reason is simply that these are virulences and that culture does not survive in the presence of a virus. I think I have to let that set in a little bit. Modern communism is full of the spirit of Jacobinism and its influence upon culture, wherever it has made headway, has been much the same. Mikhail Sholokhov is, I believe, under a kind of limited dispensation. He is allowed to portray the local and the traditional, but not to the point of impugning party doctrine. Communism is by its very nature intolerant of independent projections of reality. And there is the further consideration that no one can take culture seriously if he believes that it is only the uppermost of several layers of epiphenomena resting on a primary reality of economic activity. So in other words, the, the communist saw about economic disparities and how they build class warfare and everything. You have to look deeper than that in order to really understand the value of culture. These are political interferences, but no discussion of cultural freedom would be complete without some notice of the right to moral censorship claimed by the political state. Whatever its form, virtually every state has at one time and another used its apparatus of coercion to forbid certain cultural expressions on the ground of their pernicious moral tendency. Of course, we've never had that in our day. Right. This is essentially an intrusion to be distinguished from that cultural coercion which the spirit of a culture exercises in defense of its integrity. The ever-latent temptation to invoke the right of moral censorship makes it desirable to study the question in principle. The idea that a society, that's his thesis statement then for this essay, the idea that a society can be absolutely open either politically or culturally seems to be untenable. But it can be more open culturally. And the reason for saying this is that cultural or artistic creation exists in the province of the imagination. That is not a completely isolated province, but since cultural works are not immediately translated into moral consequences, 
they should get the longest hearing before it is determined whether nature imitating art they are going to prove deleterious. We need to view art differently for this reason and with reference to law. Weaver's application of literary analysis to an array of T.S. Eliot poems is utilized much like his use of Platonic dialogues in previous works we've discussed. It's a master class in cultural critique. I hope everybody reads that. His conclusion is simple and poignant. In brief, cultural freedom as an integral part of the free society requires that distinctive cultures be allowed to preserve their homogeneity. Reading it again. Cultural freedom as an integral part of the free society requires that distinctive cultures be allowed to preserve their homogeneity. Even Southern culture. <gasps> that creators of cultural works should not be hobbled by political and sociological dogmas, and that in a given culture, a tradition should be left free to find its own way of renewing itself. Violation of any of these shows a fundamental ignorance of what culture is and of how it ministers to the life of the spirit. We could obviously say more about this essay and read various lengthy excerpts, but over the course of our seven podcasts, we've really covered all of this in various ways and from a variety of angles. So I think this is a good place to conclude, and I look forward to our final podcast of this series that will be a nice bringing together an amalgam of all those threads and a debrief where we process some of the riches that we've gleaned and try to, I guess this would be our next session would be the equivalent of going to the foundry and melting all, melting it all down and seeing what the, the most pure and valuable um, things we've gleaned from our excursions. Our times need Richard Weaver. And we are so thankful that Dr. Tolman has brought Richard Weaver to us so that we can experience him and what he had to say about culture in our times. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour. <laughs>